Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Today's conversation will take a look at two critically important legal issues. First, we'll take a look at the Supreme Court's latest climate change decision, West Virginia v. EPA, what the opinion says, and what is its impact. Second, we'll look at a legal test that's causing shockwaves through the regulatory landscape, and that is the major questions doctrine. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by an expert on both environmental and administrative law, and I think one that will be perfect for today's conversation. Lisa Heinzerling is a professor at Georgetown Law Center. Lisa, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me. Professor, we're going to be talking about the case, West Virginia v. EPA. Then later in the conversation, we're going to be, I, I think, jumping off the deep end into the major questions doctrine. But first, maybe we can tee up the case itself. Can you give us the 10,000 foot overview? Yeah, the case is in in technically about a section of the Clean Air Act that regulates stationary sources, sources that stay in one place, essentially, like power plants. And EPA had issued a rule back in 2015 regulating power plants. And the case was about, in one sense, about what the Clean Air Act meant uh, in the context of uh, EPA's rule. It was also, though, about a really big issue that only grew bigger with the Supreme Court's decision. And that is, how do we go about interpreting statutes? And in particular, when uh, the government tries to take on a really important problem, how do the courts react? And here the court really solidified and deepened its reliance on a doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine. And this is a part of the opinion that applies well beyond the Clean Air Act. Well, Professor, I want to get into the weeds on major questions, what exactly it is, where it comes from, why is it so controversial. But let's start with the case itself. Here we're talking about the Clean Air Act and a Barack Obama era law called the Clean Power Plan. Maybe we can start with what was the Clean Power Plan and why did states such as West Virginia raise concerns about that policy? The Clean Power Plan was a regulation that the EPA issued under the Clean Air Act under a provision that allows it to regulate stationary sources and requires EPA to set emission limits for these sources based on, and this is a quote from the statute, the best system of emission reduction that EPA finds to be, have been demonstrated in the real world. And it seems like pretty broad authority. A very broad authority. That language is uh, is strikingly broad, which is what EPA uh, EPA argued. And so the case then involved the legality of the EPA's decision to read that provision to allow it to set emission limits based on measures that actually would shift 
electricity generation from coal-fired power plants to gas-fired power plants and to uh, sources that are renewable like solar and wind. And so is that, it's called generation shifting. It was that piece of the approach of EPA back in 2015 that the court was considering. It wasn't that they were being gradually tougher on coal power plants. It was, it was meant to be a transition away from coal. Yes, in a sense, it was it was the EPA decided what would be the level of emission reduction that could be achieved by shifting power production and not hugely, but shifting power production from coal to these other sources. What do you mean by not hugely? Well, it wasn't let's shut down all of the coal power plants. No, I think it was a 10% uh, difference, something like that. And in fact, the Clean Power Plan, it never took effect. The Supreme Court stayed the Clean Power Plan using its shadow docket back in early 2016. But even so, the goals of the regulation EPA enacted were met by the deadlines set forth in the rules, and they were met without the kind of economic cataclysm that people had predicted, the challengers to the rule had predicted. So that's why I say relatively modest. Yeah, let's unpack that, I guess, in two parts. First, you mentioned casually how it was stayed by the shadow docket. For those who are not avid Supreme Court watchers like yourself, what does that exactly mean? The Supreme Court, when it hears cases, it has a very uh, kind of routinized program for hearing those cases. So it will grant review on a handful of cases every year. And then it has a full briefing of those cases. So that involves an opening brief and a, and a responsive brief and then a reply brief and then oral argument. And what the Supreme Court has come to do in recent years really accelerated its docket for emergency appeals. And these were typically matters that dealt a lot of times with, for example, uh, executions that were going like to happen death row at appeals. midnight. Appeals. And so there was an emergency. If, if that execution was happening illegally, the court needed to be able to act on it. But lately, the Supreme Court has used its emergency powers to stop a lot of lower court opinions um, or the effect of a lot of lower court opinions, not through its normal docket where you have full briefing and argument, but through this emergency docket, which has come to be thought of as the shadow docket. And it's shadow docket for a number of reasons. One, it's not the main docket the court has always used for dispensing with cases. And two, there is something shadowy about it in the sense that the court- That it happens in the shadows. We don't see the- we don't see the thought process. We don't read the full opinion. Absolutely. There's, in many, most cases, there's just no opinion at all. When the Supreme Court stayed, that is stopped, the Clean Power Plan in 2016, it didn't issue an opinion. It had never done, to anybody's recollection, ever done anything like it before. They reached out before Laura Court had decided anything and stopped the rule from taking effect. I have argued in print that I think they actually didn't have jurisdiction to even issue that order. And so it was an early, maybe the earliest, really aggressive use of the shadow uh, docket. And of course, now the shadow docket is actually bigger than the ordinary docket of the Supreme Court. In that case, 
as you mentioned, the, the targets were reached, but not exactly because the government said you have to. Right. Which I think does suggest that perhaps the targets uh, weren't as stringent as one might have hoped for. <laughs> well, okay. So in that case, the clean power plan was stayed. In other words, it was it was tossed out. So how did it find its way back into the court and under you know the more public review? Well, it's it's interesting and actually somewhat strange. So the the the, the clean power plan was still technically on the books, so to speak. The Supreme Court stayed it, but did not take it the books. And so then it was being challenged in the lower courts. Um, the, the Supreme Court's decision was a kind of on a preliminary uh, motion by the challengers. And so then the case challenging the Clean Power Plan was in the D.C. Circuit. But then soon after the administration changed hands, President Trump came into office and he decided um, the EPA under him decided we don't like the Clean Power Plan, we're going to repeal it and replace it with a much weaker rule. So that's what they did. Then that action was appealed to the D.C. Circuit, and the D.C. Circuit uh, invalidated them both, held that both were illegal because they rested on an incorrect legal premise. The legal premise was that under the section of the Clean Air Act that the EPA was working with, it could only regulate sources based on measures that could be taken to or at the source, meaning it could only re do regulation that happened at a particular physical facility and not didn't go beyond that facility. And the D.C. Circuit said that was that was incorrect. That was an incorrect legal premise. And so they struck down the repeal of the Clean Power Plan and the replacement. Then the administration sh shifted hands again. It seems like sometimes we're just trading back regulatory policy, one administration to the other, that we never actually move forward, but that's for another day. So the new Biden administration thinks, well, we want to take a look at this because uh, we need to revisit it. The Supreme Court stayed the rule and things have moved on. The deadlines have passed. The targets have been met. met so we would like nothing to happen basically until we change the rule. So it asked the DC Circuit to stay the vacature, which is the undoing of the repeal, which meant that there would be the, the clean power plan would not suddenly spring back to life. I don't think that would have happened anyway, but the, the, that was the idea. So the DC Circuit grants that motion. So at that point, there is just nothing on the books. There's no, there's no um, clean power plan. There's no replacement rule. So then it became a question when it came to the courts appealing to the Supreme Court is what would actually the Supreme Court be reviewing? There was no rule in place. There was the deadlines has passed. The goals had been met. What 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 would they review? And so that's why you may have heard a lot about the antecedent question: Should the court take the case at all? And then once it heard arguments, should it keep the case? And a lot of people, me included, thought no. There are plenty of legal doctrines that either would have forbidden the court to hear the case or at least given it plenty of power 
to either not take the case at all or to just Professor, it. is one of those related to the concept of ripeness? Yes. So there are a number of doctrines relating to the court's authority to hear cases and also relating to the kind of the prudence of hearing cases at a particular time. And ripeness is a doctrine that relates to the court's choice whether to hear a case in a particular time. And the court really has a ton of leeway here. It's really a judicially created doctrine that's meant to keep the court from hearing right. uh, cases that it really shouldn't be hearing at this time. And that could have easily been deployed here to avoid this case. And I'll just mention as well, the court's docket is completely discretionary. There was nothing that required it to take this case. Discretionary and incredibly overloaded with applications for other topics that may be actually laws that are in place or, or matters that are currently pressing. Absolutely. There are always open splits, that is disagreements, among the lower federal courts that go unresolved by the Supreme Court. And yet here the court reached out and took a case uh, where there's no rule left. So, Professor, obviously, if they did that, they were eager to, to make some impact on the law. Is perhaps this a good time to talk about the opinion? Sure. Bottom line is the court rejected EPA's approach to regulating power plants under the Clean Air Act, and in particular rejected the uh, part of the rule that relied on shifting generation from coal and other fossil fuels to either to, to gas or to renewable sources. And uh, it rejected that um, uh, based on its use of something called the major questions doctrine. At first off, this is John Roberts writing the majority. Did that surprise you at all that the chief was the one coming out with this? It didn't surprise me in the sense that ultimately, as we'll talk about here, the case came down to an understanding of the constitutional separation of powers more than it had to do with the Clean Air Act. And that's the kind of case Chief Justice Roberts loves to write in, that he's very concerned about the separation of powers, and that turned out to really be the fundamental basis for the court's opinion in this case. So I was would have been surprised if it were predominantly just a, a quite technical question under the Clean Air Act, but that's not how it turned out. Well, I want to wade into the major questions doctrine and, and how it was applied here. But perhaps, Professor, could we take a step back? What exactly is the major questions doctrine and when was it first established? It's been in the kind of air for about 25 years. Uh, the, the court in a few cases in the 90s um, referred to questions as being particularly important, in particular, in a case involving the FDA's attempt to regulate tobacco. The court referred to the economic and political significance of the question and suggested that they thought Congress would speak pretty clearly if it had wanted the FDA to regulate tobacco. And that's the way the matter stood for a while. It wasn't really about a really strong idea. It wasn't a really big idea. It certainly was nothing like a doctrine. It was just 
offered as one additional argument for a particular statutory outcome. Then it started to, it was a way of depriving an agency of the deference it would ordinarily be entitled to. So there's a long-standing case called Chevron under which the Supreme Court has long deferred to reasonable interpretations of statutes by administrative agencies. Under the Chevron case, the doctrine was, am I right, that unless it was specifically excluded from the powers, then the court would apply some type of reasonableness test to the agency's approach. Exactly. If the if the statute clearly ruled out what the agency did, then the agency would lose, obviously. But other than that, it, if the statute wasn't so clear, then the agency would typically win because courts said that they would defer to reasonable interpretations of um, agency constructions. So for some time, the major questions idea played a role insofar as the court said, well, we won't defer to an agency when it's answered a question of major significance without clear language from Congress. So there the major questions doctrine was shifting from just this kind of add-on argument in a case of statutory interpretation to a reason why the court wouldn't defer as it ordinarily would. Interesting. Now with West Virginia and arguably a couple of cases involving COVID measures where the court also rejected what the agencies did. Now the, the major questions idea has been elevated to uh, what's known in the, in the jargon as a kind of clear statement principle. And that is that the court starts off by asking, is the statute clear? And if it's not clear, then whatever position is being argued on behalf of the government uh, will probably lose. Well, actually will lose on a strong enough version of the clear statement principle like the one um, embraced in West Virginia. So the idea is that the court basically is looking, is this a big question? Is it a question of economic and political significance? And if it is, it's just gonna look at the statute and say, is it clear? It doesn't do the same kind of statutory analysis it would do in other cases, which hopefully involves a careful, you know, analysis of the language and history and structure of the statute in question. This doesn't do that. This gives really gets the card off the hook. They look, they sort of uh, eyeball it and say it's a major question. And then at that point, they're looking for extreme clarity. Yeah, what 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 does that mean? Is it clear? That, I mean, that seems in and of itself. The test seems uh, pretty broad. Well, I I can't help but say it's not clear, right? I mean, it's just not clear how much clarity is required because, as we talked about before, the language "best system of emission reduction" is very broad language. And it seems designed to give an agency maximal discretion in responding to new problems and conditions. And that's exactly what the court in West Virginia denied the EPA. You know, that I got I to gotta laugh to myself uh, that a court that holds, that has a problem with giving maximum discretion has given itself mas maximum discretion? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. There's a weird way. I haven't quite worked this out yet, but there's a weird way in which the court's decision is a perfect kind of opposite major questions idea. They decided a huge question, interpreted a, a constitutional doctrine, not explicitly, but that has to be what they're doing in an aggressive new way, really for the first time in uh, in the in my view, in the country's existence. And so in a way, the court itself was violating the major questions doctrine. And they don't see it that well, way. You know, I want to, you know, dig deeper again. I mean, I hope we're not getting too in the weeds, but Chevron deference, at some point, that was a conservative-backed doctrine. Now it's being replaced or undermined by the con um, the most conservative court that we've had in a few decades? Yes, it's a very disquieting turn of events, in my opinion. Chevron was born not even, I think, in the Supreme Court so much as in the D.C. Circuit. And judges took the court's opinion in Chevron and just ran with it and really made it I think just about the most important principle in administrative law for for quite a while. It was the most cited case in administrative law, and courts just routinely deferred to agencies. And I'll I'll tell you, Chevron was decided in 1984, and who was in office? President Reagan, followed by President Bush, and that was the period in which the doctrine really took off and really became such a, a solid part of administrative law. Then it just sort of uh, beats along, and there are some adjustments to it, cutting back on the circumstances in which it would apply, and to some extent cutting back on the, on the occasions on which the court deferred. But then suddenly, wouldn't you know, Barack Obama's in our office, and he has a pretty robust regulatory agenda, and suddenly people started to say about Chevron, we don't like this at all. That's not uh, what's have. good for the goose is good for the gander kind of uh this this gave the Republican presidents a lot of power we we liked it and now for for the same reason we we're not yeah. a big fan yeah I think that's exactly right I mean I don't know an ex uh, another way to read the history Justice Scalia was one of the biggest fans of Chevron for years and indeed even in the supreme court on the dc circuit he helped to build chevron into what it became but on the on the supreme court he authored opinions where other conservative justices wouldn't join him he ironically you'll love this as if you don't know it already he uh, authored an opinion which rejected the idea that um, this kind of deference was not available for so-called jurisdictional questions, questions that went to the scope of the agency's own authority. And he made fun of the argument and said, oh, there's not one deference principle for big stuff and one for run-of-the-mill humdrum stuff. There's just one <laughs> wow. principle. Which is uh, seems to be in conflict with major questions entirely. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, whether you love him or hate him, uh, Justice Scalia was certainly one of the best at making fun of <laughs> of doctrines or, or, or opinions he didn't believe in. That's true. He had that skill. So that was major questions. Why don't we look at how major questions can be applied to the West Virginia case? Yes. So what the court did is 
figure out first, was this a major question? This question of, of uh, deciding to enact emission reductions at power plants by looking in part at the potential of shifting electricity from coal to other kinds of um, power plant sources. And so the court said, yeah, that was a major question. It was a major question. I think the court has at least six, maybe more factors that it cites in going into that. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, in his separate opinion, added a seventh uh, that had also been accepted in a couple of other cases in the past year. And so he embraced a quite complicated multifactorial test for deciding whether something mm. was a major question. And then once he found that this was indeed a major question, again, despite the fact that the emission limits were, uh, were met on time, and it appears without breaking much of a sweat, but it's a major question. And so at that point, the court is looking for extreme clarity. It is at that point, it doesn't need to go into the statutory language in, in tremendous detail, since at that point, it's just, as I say, eyeballing it to see whether the statute is clear enough. And was the language that was found to be too, I don't know, opaque or too broad? Was that the the language you referenced earlier, which was sort of a best practices approach? Yeah, the, the language was the best system of emission reduction. And here, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts said, well, that doesn't mean anything. Shorn of context, he says, the mm. system doesn't mean anything. But of course, that's not the right question to ask. The question is, what is the context? What is, where does that appear in the statute? What else can we glean from surrounding provisions? And so he doesn't find that word clear enough, partly, I think, by just completely abstracting that word from its statutory context. Well, for those who haven't picked up on it thus far, I'm detecting some skepticism on your part in the majority's reading of this case and major questions overall. Yes, I'm very critical of the major questions doctrine. I think, for one thing, I think it's utterly subjective. It's really going to be hard to know in advance what questions the conservative justices on the Supreme Court will think are important enough to require an extra clear statement from Congress. If you think about political and economic significance, that is just an utterly subjective and malleable test. For one thing, it depends on how you frame the question and nothing in the major questions doctrine tells us how to frame the question. So we could look at the, the regulation in uh, the West Virginia case and think, well, this is a pollution control measure. It's just what EPA does. It's what they've done for 50 years. Or we could look at it as a device to transform the electric grid. And if we look at it that way, it looks big. Nothing in the doctrine tells us how to do that. And so that I, I fear that there will be a huge amount of discretion on the part of judges in applying this test. I also think that the doctrine is a real thumb in Congress's eye, basically. Really, Fascinating. It really limits Congress's authority to take on big questions 
or just questions that Congress might wonder whether Brett Kavanaugh is going to think are important years down the road after all the appeals to a particular action are in. And why do you mention uh, Justice Kavanaugh in particular? Well, I think he actually is uh, responsible, not entirely, obviously, in the Supreme Court. It's there, there were six justices that were with Chief Justice Roberts. But as a D.C. Circuit judge, he really pushed the major questions doctrine aggressively. It, it seemed almost like part of his campaign for the Supreme Court, quite honestly. And so I mentioned him in particular in thinking about what does Congress need to think before it passes even a new statute? Does it have to think, it has to think, is the question we're addressing in this particular provision a major question, in which case we have to be clear, we're not quite sure how clear, because the court wasn't clear on that. And so I think right. a lot of people, we're always talking about administrative agencies and bureaucracies and so forth, but this is also a real limit on Congress's power going forward. The court does talk about old statutes, and certainly existing statutes are going to be vulnerable under this doctrine, but the, nothing in the court's opinion uh, means that new statutes won't be subject to it, too. The, the, the idea of the age of the statute and the agency's regulatory history under the statute, those are just two pieces of what I've said is a multifactorial test. Yeah, was that the six part test that you referenced earlier? Yeah. Is it worth yeah. uh, running through and cataloging those? Well, it has it, it, to do with economic significance, political significance, the, the kind of age of the statute. Is it a long extant statute, the court says? Is it, has the agency acted this way before? Has Congress declined to pass a statute that tackles the same kind of problem in, in kind of the same way? Is the provision, this one, this one really bugs me, um, the, is the provision an ancillary provision of the statute, what, what Chief Justice Roberts called a kind of backwater provision? If so, the court's going to be more skeptical about whether it grants. Um, it bugs you because then you have to decide what's ancillary? Well, I think that was the question to be decided in the case. It wasn't a way, it wasn't an input to the case. The question to be decided was, is Section 111 a source of meaningful authority to address all kinds of air pollution, including carbon pollution? That was the question, essentially. And so for the court to say, well, the provision is ancillary, therefore it doesn't include the authority that EPA claimed, it's just, to me, is just wrong. That was the question to be decided. It wasn't part of the input. It will be an ancillary provision because the court trimmed EPA's power under it. But otherwise it was or could be seen as central. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the court also sort of uh, ribbed EPA that this was a, this was a, a gap-filling provision. Those are incredibly important. And the ancillary provision, well, why does the court get to decide what's ancillary, especially textualists on the court who tell us every word matters? Why That's do they get to sort of uh, erase some of the power that the statute seems to give? I wonder how the court would view a similar argument applied to Supreme Court opinions. Oh, no, that was, uh, that was an ancillary uh, opinion. That was in a parenthetical. Now I've seen that coming up. Parentheticals apparently no longer significant sources of legal authority or footnotes. 
and Supreme Court opinions. That would be great. If they didn't count, that would be good. Well, I, I can't imagine a law professor scoffing at footnotes and the power of footnotes. Well, I, I clicked for Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit, and he used to say footnotes were either unnecessary or wrong. And there is something to that. <laughs> So that's probably uh, as anti-footnote as, as I'll find in the academy. W one question I had with major questions was, how does it relate to a doctrine that I was more familiar with, with was political questions where the court would give deference to the executive for questions that involved politics? I mean, they're in different domains, so I don't think they're really, uh, really traveling the same path. But I mean, I don't know if you're getting at um, courts not wanting to decide political questions. The, the political question doctrine is a way for the court to stay its hand when it thinks an issue is too, is too big. And I suppose there might be some perceived tension if you just look at these doctrines in this, maybe not even just superficially, that in one case, the real political nature of a question allows the court not to decide it. And on the other hand, the court here is aggressively deciding a case that it admits poses a significant political question. It seemed um, interesting to me that the, the court would say, oh, no, that's a political question, so we're leaving it alone if it involved the executive. But oh, that's a major question, so we have to take a closer look yeah, if it I, involved I hear the you. legislature. I, I hear that. I mean, and I am going to go and look at what the, because I think there's like a six-factor test for political questions, too. Well, uh, good luck to your law students next semester. I, I'm guessing they're going to they're gonna be tested on these both of these topics. Yes. Professor, we talked through the opinion, which is now the law, why don't we quickly look at the dissent? Was this Justice Kagan? Yeah, Justice Kagan wrote a really uh, good dissent. She was an administrative law professor. She knows what she's talking about. She has opinions on this that will predate <laughs> her time on the Supreme Court. And uh, I thought it was so interesting. She really said, look, I, I said some years ago, we're all textualists now. And I thought that I was joining the textualists, you know, suggesting that I was joining them, but it turns out they're not textualists, uh, or at least not textualists anymore, in the sense that they've fabricated this major questions doctrine, which allows them to escape the text of the statute and treat it quite dismissively, I would say. And so that was her opening kind of remark, and I thought it was really um, spot on, actually. And she called the major questions doctrine a get-out-of-text-free card. And I think that is exactly, oh, wow. exactly right. Yeah, she wasn't pulling punches in her dissent either. I noticed that she was also skeptical about justices or judges' ability to understand even uh, environmental law issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the reasons why for so long courts uh, deferred to agencies' interpretations of the statutes they 
administer is that agencies actually have expertise on the relevant questions. These questions are incredibly complicated. The statutes embrace that complexity and rely in many cases on quite difficult scientific and te technical choices. And so instead of doing that analysis, which, which gives so much deference to agencies' judgments, the court just created this rule that allows it to escape that altogether. And I think that is very dangerous. All right, a break for the lawyers listening who want CLE credit for this interview. The code for this interview is all sevens, five sevens. That's seven, 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 seven. And now back to the interview. I had a question about that. Under major questions, it doesn't matter whether or not the FDA, uh, sorry, the FDA, it could be FDA, the EPA's approach was brilliant or whether it was effective or needed. All that is irrelevant if it is unclear and a major question. Correct. Correct. So all that work that went into that rule, all the years of work and the careful analysis and the scientific and technical evidence, all of it just gets thrown out the window because the justices think the, the, the issue is important and that the statute doesn't satisfy their own. So in a way, does that make it easier for the justices? You know, we don't even have to get into whether this is good policy. It's just important. It's a major question. And so, you know, we're going to take a look at the clarity and, and toss it out if we think it's a little overly broad. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's so easy. It's just so easy. And if you want to see how easy it is, look at the, the opinions that the court issued when it rejected the administration's rules on COVID transmission. That was a very interesting case. What, what was the name of that one? NFIB versus Department of Labor, and the other was Alabama Realtors Association. And those were cases requiring vaccination? Uh, refresh me. The CDC uh, issued a nationwide moratorium on eviction in areas with high COVID spread in order to limit the spread. And uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration required large employers to require either vaccinations or a, a robust testing program in their workplaces. And the Supreme Court rejected both of those, um, both of those rules. And based on uh, a kind of unelaborated or a less elaborated version of the major questions doctrine. And in fact, as far as I can tell, it was basically a single sentence. The court says, we expect Congress to speak clearly if it intends to authorize an agency to address significant uh, questions like these. And so then the court just quite quickly got into the statute, didn't see the clarity it wanted, and undid these really big rules uh, issued to prevent spread of, of COVID. And so it's, it's just the easiest thing in the world. Find a major question, hmm. look for clarity, you're done. And what I fear is that what this does as well. We focused on the Supreme Court today, and rightly so, but there are a lot of lower court judges out there, and I will say a lot of conservative lower court judges. 
and politically conservative, not not really by disposition conservative in some sense. But they, a lot of lower court judges will be able to use this and in a way that really doesn't require that much effort. They can just say, we see a major question, statute isn't clear, we're done here. And there, already there are signs that this is going to be a really prominent argument in the lower courts. Why wouldn't it be that the right. Supreme Court yeah. is handed regulated industry a, a huge gift, a really easy way out of the regulation that they uh, don't like. One of the major tensions with major questions is, sure, uh, we can all appreciate that overregulation or bad regulations are a burden and and there should be a way to to contest them. And perhaps this can be one. On the other hand, if you think about the power of an agency to to react to new challenges or to react quickly to important challenges that fall within their purview, this could be a real problem with with that speed aspect, with with giving agencies authority for for future adaptation. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I do worry about the chilling effect on agencies at, first at the outset when they're even trying to think of a solution to a problem. Right? That they'll be less apt to be creative, less apt to take on new problems, because that's what the Supreme Court seems to be suggesting. They should just take on old problems in the old way and not do too much. And my worry is that they'll be kind of incentivized in that direction. And we actually need agencies. All the important regulatory programs in the country are run by administrative agencies. And they're given that authority in order to be able to respond um, to problems that emerge and without having to go back to Congress every time a new problem comes up. I mean, it's hard not to bring up the the gridlock that's become the day-to-day -day of Congress if, if you're limiting agencies' power and if we continue to live in a an era where Congress has significant challenges to push any significant changes, then what are we left with? Yeah, that's exactly uh, the right question. It's it 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 at a time when it's already painfully difficult to get any major um, bill through Congress. The Supreme Court just made it more difficult, and weirdly, it did it in the name of having Congress decide issues. Well, then don't make it actually harder. You've laid your cards on the table that you're not a fan. For those that are, who would be advocates of major questions, um, and perhaps we'll have someone on the program in the future, is the argument great? This, you know, let's let's have less regulations, and where we need them, let's let the states decide. I think uh, that could be part of it, but I I, I think the argument is actually that, and I think there's a great deal of sense to it if you don't think about it too carefully. And the, the great deal of sense to the argument in favor of the major questions idea is that I think everybody wants Congress to, to decide the big questions. Everybody wants Congress to be more involved right now. Everyone, everyone, everyone wants that. So the question isn't, should Congress be acting? Absolutely. The question is, should the Supreme Court the, the completely unaccountable branch of government 
be making choices for Congress that make it more difficult for Congress to do its job. It's a fight between the branches. It's not a question of saying it's not a good idea when Congress acts. Of course it is. And so I think a lot of people hear that idea of it, which is Congress should decide the important questions. Yes. Okay. Sure. Do we like the Supreme Court, the conservative justice on the Supreme Court, forcing Congress to make the big decisions on pain of having its existing statutes trimmed back or ignored? I don't think so. Professor, why don't we talk about the legacy of this case, particularly, why don't we start in the environmental milieu, and then if you want, to, if you want we, can, we can go a little bit broader. The case, as, as impactful and as powerful as it is, let's not go too far. It, it still allows EPA to regulate emissions. It still allows EPA to regulate carbon emissions. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. And those are really good reminders that all is not lost by any means. So EPA still has the authority to regulate um, mobile sources, cars and trucks under the Clean Air Act. It even has the authority to act under the provision that was at issue in this case, which applies to stationary sources. So it continues to have that authority. It is, uh, EPA is working right now on a rule under that section on methane that everybody is hoping will be a pretty strong rule and seems to avoid um, these kinds of questions. So there's, there is a lot EPA can do still, even with respect to greenhouse gases. And then just remember that a lot of these sources emit a lot of different pollutants that are all regulated under the Clean Air Act. And any one strategy to reduce um, those pollutants probably reduces other pollutants as well. Ah, so you can go after particulates and in the process reduce carbon. Yes. So the strange thing about the court's opinion, though, in this regard is it's I don't know whether the court will look askance if EPA says we are regulating particulate matter because it's one of the most lethal hazards we face and uh, we're regulating it under our traditional you know, system for dealing with hazardous um, air pollution. And right. But what if it mentions climate? The, the court in West Virginia apparently scoured like a press release from environmental groups talking about how huge the clean power plan was and cited uh, testimony from Gina McCarthy when she was EPA head that talked about the rule as not being so much about pollution control as about investing in clean energy. And they cited um, press releases from environmental groups talking about the historic nature of the rule. They cited these in support of their conclusion that it was a major question. So they took these other representations completely outside of the, the record of the rulemaking in front of the EPA and said this shows that the EPA was really up to something big and was up to something different from its usual pollution control kind of agenda. And so that just worries me about what else is the court going to cite in the future to show that it's a major question. It's, it's, it's baffling. Plus, 
we both know that the spin that you can put on a law can go any direction. And so, yeah, maybe in front of one audience, this law is is a win for X. And in front of another, it's a win for Y and Z. And maybe in the drafting, it was really there for <laughs> jobs in the state of the congressional sponsor. Exactly. It's so funny because the Supreme Court in a whole separate line of cases is really trying to bring the the agencies ever closer to the president, make sure they are really answerable to the president. That is more political. And yet when they speak in these political terms, the justices just don't seem astute enough to realize that's what politicians do. They brag a lot, they overclaim, right? They overstate. And it just, it just seems like a baffling window into their worldview. Where does this leave environmental regulation? What, I guess, what would be your advice to EPA agency officials who are drafting new policy? Is there a way that you think they could do it that would avoid this major questions threat? I don't know that there's a way to draft a rule to avoid it. Um, I think it is helpful if the agency can really, really detail what they've done in the past that looks like what they're doing now. Because that would make it, the similarity would make it uh, less of a, a major question? Yeah, according to the court, um, which of course has implications for agencies taking on new problems in new ways. But if they, if they can show regulatory history, that helps. I mean, I think the court kind of dismissed the regulatory history that was there in West Virginia, but that, that would help. One trouble is that these rules take years to develop an issue. And so that I think agencies might be reluctant to start down the road if they think what they're dealing with is really a hot button matter. But then again, that's what we want agencies to take on in a certain sense, right? Right. I mean, the most, most political issues are perhaps going to be the most important ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. The reason that people care about them and fight about them and the agency is willing to impose uh, large costs is that they're so important. And so I don't know what the Supreme Court's vision of government is. It should be about little tiny things that don't matter instead of big things. It's, it's really quite disturbing. I'm sure Justice Roberts would say, no, we just want Congress to be more clear when they're issuing authority. That's what that's what he would say. And uh, we'll see if he ever finds language he thinks is clear enough when it comes to a major <laughs> question. He didn't find the Affordable Care Act clear enough to avoid a major question in King versus Burwell. And the Affordable Care Act just it was just so obvious that Congress would have wanted federal subsidies to be available in federal exchanges. And because of four words in the statute, the Chief Justice said it's unclear. And again, perhaps related to the fact that that was such a hot button political issue, there may be, even if it's in the back of the judge's justice's mind, a sliding scale on, well, this one's such a hot political issue that it it may need more clarity. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a strange test. and. It, 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 when applied, for example, to Congress's actions going forward, 
the Congress will be able to do less on these hot button issues where it would be inclined often to compromise, to leave something ambiguous, right? To, to have everybody feel like they got something out of the deal. And that might not be enough. And Professor, where does this leave Chevron? Is Chevron deference dead? I think so. Yeah, I think so. The Supreme Court hasn't actually said that, but it hasn't deferred to an agency interpretation in six years. It doesn't cite the case for the most part. For a while, it was citing the case only for the purpose of saying it's not a question of deference here because the statute is so clear. But now it just doesn't cite it. Um, the government often doesn't even ask for deference anymore. And so I feel like it um, died and, and no one knew. And no one showed up. Yeah, yeah, sad. All that, all those years of service. Professor, how does the major questions doctrine relate to non-delegation? It's a really good question. The non-delegation principle is the idea that Congress has given legislative authority in the Constitution, and Congress can't delegate or give away any of that legislative authority to any other entity, such as an administrative agency. And the court has almost never taken this principle uh, and, and invalidated a federal statute. Only twice in 1935 did it invalidate federal statutes. So it's been at least dormant, some people think almost non-existent for a very long time. What were the laws that were invalidated in 1935? They were pieces of the New Deal legislation that had to do with setting codes of fair competition and um, pr protecting you know, wages and prices and so forth. So, but the conservative justices have in recent years indicated that they would like to vitalize the non-delegation doctrine. And they would like to use as a test for non-delegation uh, the question whether Congress has decided the important policy questions. So if you've been listening, you think this is exactly like the, non the major questions doctrine. The justices, the conservative justices have said they're interested in, in applying the non-delegation doctrine forcibly. They've offered a test that turns on the importance of the policy question. And they've also tied the non-delegation doctrine to the major questions doctrine in the sense that they think of the major questions idea as kind of being a way to, uh, to enforce the non-delegation principle. And in West Virginia, the Chief Justice is remarkably coy on this point. He says that separation of powers principles undergird the major questions doctrine, but he doesn't refer to them. But it's got He doesn't it. say non-delegation by name. Right, right. And that's a doctrine that really does limit Congress's power uh, explicitly and deliberately. And so if the court starts to enforce that in a vigorous way, as the justices have suggested they'd like to, that'll be yet another limit or, or a, a, a kind of um, enhanced limit of the same kind on Congress's power. 
So is it your prediction that we'll be seeing more of this old friend, the non-delegation doctrine in upcoming cases, or will John Roberts is more coy, it's, it's there, but it's not their approach? I think the conservative justices have most of what they need in the major questions doctrine. It does the work of the non-delegation doctrine, but it can pretend to be more modest. So the idea is we're, we're just reading the statute for clarity and not finding it. Not that we're finding the statute unconstitutional. And so it just seems more modest, more moderate, more Chief Justice Roberts-like in his own vision of himself. And so I think that they'll have a lot of work they can do just with that. On the other hand, Justices Gorsuch and Thomas concurred in the West Virginia decision and wrote separately to emphasize non-delegation. They are not done with non-delegation. And they weren't coy about mentioning it? Not at all. No, no. They are very eager to, I think, have a case in which that is squarely presented and uh, maybe a modern statute could go down on the basis of non-delegation. That's my sense. Well, let's talk about what's coming down the pike. Are there any other regulatory cases or environmental cases that you think will be brought before the court and treated with a a sound drubbing from the major questions doctrine? Well, I think one case uh, people are worried about is a case called Sackett uh, versus EPA, which involves the reach of the Clean Water Act, and specifically the extent to which it covers uh, wetlands within its regulatory provisions. And that case is in the court now. And um, one of the arguments is that the scope of the Clean Water Act as applied to wetlands is one of these major questions that requires clarity from Congress before an agency can exercise um, that authority. That is anxiety producing for many people. On the other hand, there are a number of Supreme Court cases on that very question about the reach of the the, uh, Clean Water Act's authority. And so those may well hem the court in in a way that the court wasn't hemmed in 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 West Virginia. I, I don't know, obviously, but that'll be closely watched. And then there are other cases that it seems like every day there's another current challenge to a regulation where the parties challenging the rule right to the court and say, oh, major questions, right? That's that this 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 case poses a major questions and, and that that helps our arguments. So, for example, the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in the South heard the challenge to the another challenge to the deferred action for childhood arrivals program of the Obama administration. This is the DACA case? It's DACA. And the Texas Attorney General wrote to the court and said, this is this is covered by the major questions doctrine. I think we're going to see it everywhere. I mean, everywhere. There's no case where people are spending a lot of money on the kinds of fancy lawyers that make these kinds of arguments who don't think their case is major. So I think we'll see it everywhere. I think we'll see a lot of courts uh, really taking it and, and running with it, and it'll run the gamut. A lot of people are now talking as well about the Securities and Exchange Commission's proposal to require disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions. 
and think that is uh, is just not going to fly under a 1935 statute um, that doesn't mention climate change. Fascinating. So not even the SEC is uh, safe from major questions? That's the thing about major questions. No agency is safe from major questions. It applies across the board to agency decisions. Through the conversation, you know, I'm keeping a a light tone and and looking at it as a, a legal thought experiment to some degree. But, you know, these are very important, weighty issues that are, you know, affect people's lives that may affect millions uh, when it comes to environmental damage or economic effects. So I hope that my tone isn't taken the wrong way. No, not at all. I, I joke about these things all the time because otherwise I would, my head would explode. <laughs> Well, Professor, thank you so much for your time and walking us through this. Um, it sounds like you're going to have a lot on your hands in the coming term. And, and if, you, if you can make some time, we'd love to have you back to talk about what's new and upcoming. That'd be great. Thanks. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at talksonlaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.